0: Let's open our Bibles to 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy, and tonight we'll study chapter 2, verse 15, a passage that is well known to most of you. 2 Timothy, chapter 2, verse 15. But before we get to verse 15, let me remind you of something that Paul wanted to remind us of last week. In verse 14, remind them of these things and solemnly charge them in the presence of God not to wrangle about words, which is useless and leads to the ruin of the hearers. In Timothy's teaching, he was to remind those under his leadership of the importance of endurance and suffering, and that fighting over trivial non-essentials is not only a waste of time, as he had written in his first letter to Timothy, but would lead to the destruction of those who had participated, as well as to those who were within listening range of the discussion. Timothy must take this charge seriously. He is to solemnly charge them before God, or perhaps even better, as God being their witness. What Timothy is doing here, he is is not asserting that exegetes should not have healthy discussions about the fine points of the Holy Text. That's not what he's saying. In the next verse, in our verse today, he'll tell us to rightly divide the word of truth, or to competently handle the word of truth. Paul would never advocate sloppiness with the text, he would never ever advocate that. But believers can become absorbed in trivialities that are not essentials when it comes to the glorification of God in our lives. It is this that we need to avoid. Before you start a spiritual war, you need to first make sure that you're right about whatever it is you're discussing. And then second, you need to make sure that whatever you're at war about is worth fighting for. Because oftentimes, at the end of the day, it's not. And you end up losing a friend. You end up splitting a church over something that ends up being a triviality or perhaps a non-essential. The word here that is used when it says it will lead to the the ruin of the hearers, I think, is an interesting word. It's a a catastrophe. Which is a state of total ruin or destruction. If you were here last week, we we talked about that word a little bit. You hear an English word in there, catastrophe. Catastrophe. It's a catastrophe. It's not a minor thing. When when believers major on the minors, when believers start splitting hairs, splitting hairs over the non-essentials of the faith. Now I'm not talking about the essentials of the faith. I'm talking about non-essential trivialities. I gave you an example from a past generation because I don't really want to bring one up from our generation because I stepped on too many toes last time anyway. But a past generation argued over how many angels could dance on the head of a pen. I don't care how many angels could dance. If you say ten, that's fine with me. I'm not going to argue with you about it. I don't have time to do that. Now, I want to be I want to be upfront about this. When I, when I taught this in 1 Timothy, all the way back in 1 Timothy chapter 1, a couple books ago, some people either misunderstood or didn't want to understand, and they got very upset that I said that I would not argue over trivialities. But let me say it again, just so you hear me right. I'm not going to argue over trivialities. Get upset all you want to. Life is too short for that, and it's going to lead to a catastrophe, a catastrophe. I don't have time for that, especially when it can be avoided. Once again, I'm not talking about arguing over the essentials of the faith, things that are important to the faith. But when it comes to the non-essentials, To draw a line in the sand over non-essentials, what Paul calls here to wrangle about words, is not only not beneficial, it is destructive. Then we move right on into verse 15. This is part of the same paragraph, part of the same thought, and actually we'll have the same paragraph for quite a few verses, although we have to break it up into several lessons. In verse 15, Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth. Since many of you grew up memorizing Bible verses in the King James Version, the translation I just read to you might seem a bit out of place. Because you probably memorized that growing up, if you were a King James aficionado, one who placed a lot of importance on King James, you probably memorized that. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, Rightly dividing the word of truth. How many of you memorized that verse that way? Clearly, three quarters of you. Um, The problem is that's that's not a good translation. And I don't want to just say that because I know how dear the King James translation is, the Old King James is to many of you. But the the term spudazo, it's an heiress active imperative for what that's worth. It means it's a command, means to do something with intense effort and motivation. You see, that word study is the word we're talking about. I translated it, and New American Standard did, be diligent. Well, spudazzo does mean to do something with intense effort and motivation. It means to work hard. It means to do one's best. It means to endeavor. It can also mean, in certain contexts, to do something quickly. Or perhaps to do something with eagerness. Bear with me, please, if you would, as I briefly touch upon 10 of the 11 verses in the New Testament where spudadzo is used. I don't usually do this. There's a reason why I'm doing it tonight. So hang in there with me. I won't give you time to look these up. They'll, you can write the references down. I invite you to look them up later. I don't like it when people go through 50 verses in a, in a particular Bible lesson and you never get a chance for the context. But I'm not doing it so much here. Only to show you, for context so much here, but I'm only showing you how this word spudadzo was, was translated in other places. Again, because the verse is so beloved. And I know I'm treading on, I'm, I'm treading on uh, hallowed ground when I, when I change something that is so beloved as study to show thyself approved. But in Galatians chapter 2.10, Paul says, I was eager. Now that's the same words. spudazzo. In Ephesians 4.3, he says, being diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. 1 Thessalonians 2.17, we were all the more eager to see your face. 2 Timothy 4.9, make every effort to come to me soon. Second Timothy four twenty one. Make every effort to come before winter. Titus three twelve. Make every effort to come to me at Nicopolis. Hebrews four eleven. Let us therefore be diligent to enter into that rest. Second Peter 1.10, Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain your calling. Second Peter 1.15, And I will also be diligent that at any time after my departure you may be able to call these things to mind. And finally, in 2 Peter 3.14, Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found in him in peace, spotless and blameless. So we're forced, I believe, to the conclusion that to translate spudazzo as to study is anachronistic at best. That's why no modern translation uses the words the word study to translate spidazzo, and even the editors of the New King James, the New King James, changed the translation in that translation to be diligent. Now you may say, why bother with this? I know I don't usually, do I? Why bother with this? As you know, it's not my custom to include many of the aspects of exegesis into what I'm doing now, which is the exposition of the text. My view is that exegesis is done in the pastor's study. An exposition... Is done in the pulpit, in much the same way that at a five uh, that a five star meal served at a fancy restaurant is the meal itself is prepared in the kitchen, and then the con- the consuming of that meal takes place at the table. The preparation takes place in the con- kitchen. The consuming takes place at the table. Unless it really adds to the culinary experience, I don't need to know at which temperature. The beef has been cooked. Or how many grams of sugar are in that chocolate suicide cake? In fact, I'd rather not know how many grams of sugar in it. That way I could eat it without quite as much guilt. But, but why bother? Why did I do it tonight? I, I bother really for two reasons. First, I wanted to show you that I'm not just making that up. This study is a, is a poor translation. And secondly, the word study in this context is a misleading translation. That's why that's the main thing that I wanted to, uh, to to present to you tonight. That study is a misleading translation. The verse uh, it makes the verse say something that it's not. Paul is not commanding Timothy, at least in the first part here. He's not commanding Timothy to study, but he's commanding him to be diligent, to make every effort, to work hard at it. And here's the interesting. Irony, the interesting part, according to the last part of the verse, rightly dividing the word of truth, according to that, study is part of being diligent. It's a part of the picture, to be sure. But it's not all the picture. The first part of the verse says, be diligent to present yourself approved to God. Work hard at it. Now, this is the debate that goes on in Christianity all the time. Is, Is the Christian life an easy life, or is the Christian life a difficult life? Well, at some point, of Jesus is saying and speaking of yoking oneself together with Him, His yoke is easy, His load is light. So they say, well, no, Christianity, when properly done, should be easy. But then I listen to Paul and I read his list of sufferings that he went. Through. It doesn't sound easy to me. And to, and to speaking of trivializing, to trivialize his sufferings and make them easy, would would be a farce. We can't do that shipwrecked, beaten, times without number, uh, stoned and left for dead. That doesn't sound easy to me. So which is it? Is it easy or is it hard? Well, the principle is that when we we understand that Jesus Christ is, is the one to whom we're yoked, that, that takes a lot of load off of our mind, but it doesn't mean that we can be lazy. You see, what Paul's doing here is he's following through with what he said for almost the entirety of the letter of 2 Timothy, and that is that laziness has no place in the Christian life. He's already used the illustration of the soldier and the farmer and the athlete and said those, those who work hard will win the prize. Now, Maybe that doesn't fit your personality. Maybe, maybe you've got a lazy personality by, uh, just by the way you're constituted. And a lot lot of people do. I I guess uh, that doesn't mean you you would have to be a failure. You can overcome that laziness. The Christian life is no place for laziness. There's no place for sloppiness. So that's why Paul tells Timothy, after after giving him this command to remind them not to wrangle over words, not to argue over trivialities, he said, you need to be diligent, Timothy. You need to work hard, all of us. Now, I want to say, in context, in the tight context, this is spoken to Timothy. And in, in the tight context, this is spoken to Timothy and church leaders. But in the broader context, it's spoken to all of us. All of us need to be diligent to work hard. We've got to put some time into it. It reminds me of the, of the story of someone who needs a job. They said, "Well, God's going to bring me that job. I prayed for God to bring me the job." And so, well, what are you doing to get a job? Oh, I don't, I'm not doing anything. I'm not. I'm not going to interrupt this process. I'm going to let Him bring me the job. So, so what's your day, what's your day look like? Well, I get up in the morning. I, I watch uh, you know the, the morning show. I, I, I watch the noon show. I watch Andy Griffith, and I, I watch Oprah in the afternoon. And by that time, my wife's come home, she can cook me some dinner, you know, as long as she rests a little bit before she does that, but then she can cook me some dinner, and as she's cleaning up the, the kitchen, I'll watch the Rockets game. Really? Is that, that's, how you're, that's how you're going about getting a job. What, I didn't hear anything about you going out to the curb and getting the paper and open up the one ads to, to at least look and see if there's something that God's put a circle around for you. Or maybe, heaven forbid, you went down the employment agency. You see, you see there's what Francis Schaefer used to call it an active passivity in the Christian life. There is a part that is passive, to be sure, where we, where we, I wish the New Ageers hadn't robbed this, uh, had stolen this phrase, where we let go and let God. There, there is an aspect of that. We can't hardly say it anymore, because they put it on too many bumper stickers with other bad things next to it. But there is an aspect of that, but then there's an aspect where you get up out of bed, go to the curb, get the paper, and take a look at it. If you have some disease, so, so, something that's eating you up from the inside out, some terrible disease. It's one thing to say, God, heal me. It's another thing to get up, get in your car, and go to the doctor. You know, maybe that's the way God chose to do it. Maybe it's not. So we pray for people here all the time. Sometimes God chooses to heal them through doctors, through what we call um, immediate source. Sometimes God does it immediately, meaning he does it himself. And sometimes he does it immediately, meaning he does it through another agency. The point Paul is making here is that we should be diligent. The poet once said, "Only one life there is that we have to live. You know, only what's done for Christ is going to truly last in this life. There's only one time you get to go around. I used to have some friends that were big in reincarnation, and they uh, sometimes they live a, a, a bit of a sloppy life because they thought if it didn't work out this time. They just do it again next time. They just do it better next time." Uh, they must have thought that a whole bunch of times because they're still having to deal with the same problems. And in their culture, in their particular worldview, their philosophy, if, uh, if they're doing the right thing, they wouldn't have to be facing the same problems anymore. But they asked me uh, what I thought. And I said, well, I don't really believe in reincarnation. They said, that's because you're a very new soul. <laughs> I said, yeah, I was born on August 6, 1956. I'm going to go around once. And I'm either going to get it right or I'm going to get it wrong the first time. There's not going to be second chances. Spudazzo. If we wrongly translate spudazzo as study, we're actually, ironically, not rightly handling the word of truth. Then it, it, you see the, see the irony there. Now, the figure of a workman here, when, when Paul says, Be diligent to present yourselves, approve to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed. The figure of a workman appears in a context which stresses the need to repel the inroads of the false teachings that were going around in Ephesus in the Christian community. That's the context. If the false teaching is to be checked in that context, Timothy, by his own example, must show what a true Christian workman is and a cr- true Christian workman does. This whole thing about it's not the man, it's the message, I'm sorry, that's that sounds really clever, but that's not biblical. There is a sense in which the message is transcendent over the man, to be sure. But people look at the man who's giving the message. And that's biblical. We've studied it in 1 Timothy. we studied it in Titus. That's a reality. I think that's why James said, let, Let not many of you become teachers. For as such you shall incur a stricter discipline. There's there's certain standards set up. It's not a standard of perfection. Thank God it's not. There there would be no teacher if there was. There would be no pastors. But there is a standard of being above reproach, which I think is the one that we talked about in the past that overrides them all. But Timothy must set the example himself for those under his charge. He can't just say, do as I say and not as I do. It's not biblical. Sometimes I wish it was. I just come up here and say, listen, you need to behave. I'm out of here. But you can't do that. This is not the way it works. Timothy must set the example. And he's to set it in contrast, at least in this context, he's to set it in contrast to those who fight over non-essentials and trivialities, who Paul just mentioned in verse 14. In opposing these types, the Christian workman must use the influence of positive personal example. That's just the reality. Now, what occupation Paul specifically had in mind when he used the figure of a workman is just not certain. I couldn't be dogmatic about that. The term was used of agricultural workers, but it was also applies to those who engaged in fishing and building and perhaps the production of some sort of uh, good or uh, not, not a service, but the production of some sort of good. Um, but most of those are people that have to work hard. When I was in uh, India in a town called Hyderabad, I, I was up on about the... F- 6th or 7th floor, I woke up in the morning, I got to the hotel at night, actually about 6 in the morning, right before the sun came up, but I looked out my hotel window because there was some noise going on out there, it was kind of blurry to me, but I saw people at the crack of dawn getting up making these clay pots, you know, the ones that you put outside that you have for your uh, plants and decorative things, they were out there sweating and working hard, and I mean, it was hard work. Anyway, the word that's used here is a word for somebody that works hard, so here we have it again. We have, we have the idea in the term be diligent. And then it comes up again to present yourself approved to God as a workman. This, this is somebody that works hard. Hope you're getting the flavor from this passage. In Paul's picture, the stress is not so much on the needed skill that the workman has, but rather on his diligence to assure that the work is approved by his employer. And such approval will require serious effort and persistent effort. To receive a well done at the judgment seat of Christ will require ceaseless, serious, and earnest effort. The Christian leader must live under the consciousness that all his work is subject to God's inspection. But again, while the immediate referent here is Timothy, and then the leaders that he's speaking to, the broader context includes church leaders throughout the church age, as well as you. Every believer in the Lord Jesus Christ will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Paul says as much in, in 2 Corinthians, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. That we may be recompensed for the deeds done in the body, whether good or bad. The, bad, the word bad means, foulest means worthless. Did you hear that? We must all appear. So while the immediate context here is Timothy and then church leaders, the broader context being church leaders throughout history, the broadest context, which still fits into the meaning of the passage, is you and me too. We are all given the charge to be diligent. To be diligent to present ourselves approved to God as a workman who needs not to be ashamed? Now, all of us have work to do for God. It's different. My work that I have to do for God is different from your work. God has called me to a to a particular uh, sequence of things that He like for me to do. And I'm faithful to it sometimes. I'm not faithful to it sometimes. Just like you are with whatever He's called you to. Do. But I hope on the it's, and I hope I hope I hope that's elpis, the confident expectation. But but I, but my, my earnest desire is that when it all comes to an end. When I get to the end of my life, I don't want to have regrets to think, boy, you know, I, I I lived, but I didn't really live. And what I mean by that is I lived, I took up time, I breathed oxygen, I took up space, I ate food, but I never really lived for Christ. Oh, what a disaster that would be. I, I can't imagine how sad people are when they get to their deathbed and they realize that they weren't a workman for Christ, that they haven't been diligent because we're all going to appear before the judgment seat of Christ. The judgment seat of Christ could be something that's a sense of great comfort to us or it could be, it could be something that scares us to death. Well, it ought not to scare you. If you've been diligent to present yourself approved unto God, a workman that needs not to be ashamed, then you won't be ashamed. God is always aware of the quality of the work that the believer does. Now, the reason I said that is because I am well aware That in the workplace today, um, your employer, your supervisor, your immediate boss may not be aware of all that you do for that company. Because you may be doing your work as unto the Lord. That, That employer may have no idea of what it is that you really do for that company. But I don't want you to transfer that idea onto Christ's evaluation. Because he does know. He knows every single bit of it. And not only does he know what you did, he also knows the attitude you had when you did it. Which does mean a lot in the plan of God. So, Paul speaks about the workman who comes under divine inspection. For himself, his concern must be to be found a workman who doesn't need to be ashamed. Did you hear that last part? Paul introduces the possibility here that there will be shame at the judgment seat of Christ. That's the part that should scare us to death if we're not faithful with what he's given us to do. And he's concerned that we avoid the embarrassment of having our work rejected. And this applies to all of us. I don't know how long this shame would last. I guess since there's no more sorrow, no more pain, no more tears, no more death in eternity, that the shame is momentary. Certainly, the rewards will be greater, though, for those who are diligent workmen. Perhaps. I don't know. But perhaps the shame is over with the moment we walk away from the judgment seat of Christ. I just don't know. I'm not sure we can know. That aspect of this is shrouded in mystery, and I think that's the way God wants it. He wants there to be a little bit of mystery about the judgment seat of Christ. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed. Now, the final aspect, handling accurately the word of truth. See, that aspect of it is a prerequisite for attaining divine approval. To handle the word of God in a sloppy manner <laughs> will assure lack of divine approval. I should stress here that the properly proper handling of the word includes diligent study. But it also includes careful application of that which has been learned. It's so important I've got to say it again. Proper handling of the word, to rightly divide the word, to properly handle it, includes diligent study. But it also includes careful application of that which has been learned. Handling accurately the same phrase translates a participle, which has been the occasion for much discussion. What does it mean? It's a compound form having the primary meaning of cutting straight. That's why the uh, the old King James would have said rightly dividing. The intended figure behind this has been identified as in many different things. One was a farmer uh, plowing a straight little uh, furrow in his field, or a mason. Cutting a straight edge on a stone, or a workman cutting a straight road, even a priest. There were some that thought this referred to a priest's proper dissection of a sacrificial animal. Arden Gingrich, a very well known lexicon that's used in in the Greek translation by many, suggests that the probable probable meaning here is to guide the word of truth along a straight path like a road that goes straight to its goal without being turned aside by wordy debates or impious talk. See, part of that goes back to the verse before. Not to wrangle about words, but to rightly divide the word of truth. To rightly divide it. To handle it accurately, perhaps, in more modern English. One commentator on this passage put it this way. The demand is for a fair... Conscientious or straightforward handling of the word itself. This, as opposed to all kinds of tortuous interpretations or byplays of in- ingenuity for sinister purposes, is preeminently what becomes the teacher who would stand approved before the judgment seat of God. He must go right on in the use of his word, or the word, maintaining it in its integrity and applying it to the great spiritual ends for which it has been given learn it, and then do it. It's both. We talk about rightly handling the word, learning it, and then doing it. The Christian leader recognizes that the word of God has its proper division and applies it according to the divine intention. All deceitful handling of the word, all deceitful handling of the word, will surely receive divine condemnation on the day of judgment. Be diligent to present yourselves approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed. Work hard to present yourself approved. Put some effort into it, handling accurately the word of truth. All believers must be careful to learn the word of God And to properly apply the word of God. So that we might not be ashamed at the judgment seat of Christ.